Our scripture reading today is Matthew 28:18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, good morning, Salt Church. My name is Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Glad that you guys are here with us. Uh, Before we begin, I have an important announcement to make. It is the fall season. Anybody a fan of the fall? It's fall, y'all. I love how fall, Riley in the back, uh, I think he likes fall more than anyone. Uh, Fall is amazing, right? Because everything changes. The leaves change. We change. We all turn into lumberjacks and start wearing flannel and boots. Uh, Our food and our beverages changes. We just add pumpkin spice to everything. We feel the need to do that in fall, but uh, I love fall. I'm glad that you guys are here with us in fall. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 is where we're going to be. If you've uh, been with us for these past few weeks, uh, we probably feel like you or you're going to feel like this is a broken record uh, because we've said this often from up front, but uh, this is our core team phase. Just want to remind everybody what this is. We're gathering uh, every Sunday during this core team to essentially ask the question, what are the core essentials that are going to define us as a church? So whether you've uh, been with us for since the beginning or whether this is your first uh, uh, Sunday, this is a great time actually to get connected because you get in on the ground floor. Uh, you can be an investor, a co-owner, uh, a church planner alongside with us here at Salt Church. And uh, these past few weeks, uh, we've been unpacking our vision statement. Our vision statement is to glorify God by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation. To glorify God by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention from our vision statement towards our mission statement. Now, uh, there's a lot of like businesses and organizations and churches even uh, that will uh, basically treat vision and mission as the same thing. You go to their website, they slap it up there and it says our vision and our mission statement. And it's literally the same thing, but they are different. And so to give us some handles uh, for us this morning to be able to differentiate them, uh, let me say this. A vision is a preferred reality. It's what we want to see. A mission is a present response. It's what we want to do. In other words, our mission is what we're going to do in order to see our vision happen. If we want to see uh, disciples multiplied so much so that church planting becomes a necessity, if we want to see churches planted so that more and more disciples are made, if we want to see the next generation reached so that uh, we can send out this gospel-carrying, God-glorifying legacy long after we are gone, if that's what we want to see, then what are we going to do to make it happen? That leads us to our mission statement, and it's this, to make disciples who love God and others, to make disciples who love God and others. That's it. Pretty easy. Pretty simple, right? I think it's maybe simple to say, but it's probably not so easy to do. And so in order for us to live this out, in order for us to unpack this mission statement, um, we're actually going to split it into two different weeks uh, because this mission statement comes from uh, two different scripture passages. One is commonly referred to as the Great Commission, and the other is referred to as the Great Commandment. This week, uh, I'm going to be speaking out of Matthew 28, which is referred to as the Great Commission. Next week, uh, uh, Keith's going to be preaching out of Mark's gospel 
on the great commandment. And hopefully we put these two together and we can live out the mission of Salt Church. But before we dive into this uh, message this morning, I just want to stress that if we have any shot of staying on mission, we've got to put the vision before us in center focus. Because the truth is, making disciples is really, really hard. This mission is not for the faint of heart. It will require surrendering ourselves. It will require giving up comforts and preferences and resources and every ounce of strength we've got to see this mission completed. I mean, I'll just say it straight up. I've been making uh, or been trying to make uh, disciples long enough to know that there are many days where you're going to want to give up and quit. Discipleship is hard. People are messy. You don't always see the impact of discipleship. You don't always see the fruit of your labor. There, I'm, I'm a pastor and there are days where I wake up and I don't want to make disciples. I, I don't have the time, much less always know how to do it. And there's a thousand other things that are going to steal my focus and my energy and my resources from this endeavor, whether it's distractions or advertisements that I need another thing or thoughts and dreams that take me away from reality or, or just a relationship that maybe robs me from the mission. And I think it's only by putting the vision center focus, a vision that is so glorious, so majestic, so amazing that will not only find the perseverance to stay on mission, but we'll actually see that it is worth it. In the past, uh, during like wartime, soldiers would uh, take a picture of their loved ones into battle to remember what they were fighting for, right? So uh, when the battle in ensued and the brutality of war uh, started to take place and bullets are flying over their heads and uh, the men around them are dying and they, they face extreme elements. They're cold, they're wet, they're hungry. They don't know if they're going to die from a disease or die out in the battlefield. They would take out this picture and they would look at it. They, they would see the face that is in that photo and they would remember what they're fighting for. I think this is similar to how we should go about our mission. We're going to face adversity in making disciples. That is guaranteed. But when that adversity comes, we need to take our vision out and remember that this glorifying God by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation, that vision is worth it because in the end, we get to see Jesus face to face. So hopefully you found your way to Matthew 28. I have three ideas I want to share from this text, an anchor for the mission, the meaning of the mission, and a promise that will preserve the mission. The first idea is this, the authority of Jesus anchors the mission. The authority of Jesus anchors the mission. Verse 18 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love this verse because Jesus doesn't start with the what before the why. He puts the why before the what, right? He, he doesn't come and tell us like, hey, here's a bunch of stuff to go do. Now just go do it. No, instead he says like, this is why you should be going on mission. And the reason we should be going on mission is because Jesus has all authority. If you notice, he doesn't say Jesus has an authority. He says, I have all authority. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus has some new authority. In fact, if you read the Matthew's gospel, Jesus's authority is displayed over and over and over again. You already know that Jesus has authority before you ever get to Matthew chapter 28. 
But what this is saying here, when it says that Jesus has all authority, it means that Jesus has a new status or a new privilege. See, Jesus as the son of God has always been ruling and reigning over creation since before the dawn of time. He's always had that kind of authority. But now here in Matthew 28, we see Jesus, the God man, actually, because he's uh, uh, saved people from their sins, he's paid the penalty for our sins and he's proved it by rising from the dead. Because he's done that, he's given the name that is above every other name. And he not only now rules as uh, king over all creation, but he rules as the savior over all creation. It's like uh, when King Charles uh, just recently ascended to the throne in the wake of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, King Charles has never known an existence where he wasn't royalty. He's always been a part of the monarchy, but now he has a special privilege that comes with taking the throne as king. I think similarly, Jesus has always had authority because he's never known an existence where he wasn't God. But as the God man, he now takes up the special status as king because he saved us from our sins. So when Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, he's not saying, hey, I control the affairs of men and I control history and I'm taking it somewhere. Jesus already has that authority. We already know that. Instead, when Jesus says, I have all authority, he's saying there's not one single spot in heaven or on earth where his power to save people from their sins can be stopped. There's not, there's not one place in creation where the curse of sin cannot be undone. There's not one single atom that Jesus cannot bring back to life. I think this has two implications for us in the mission of making disciples. The first is this. We make disciples in the authority of Jesus. We make disciples in the authority of Jesus. I want to submit to you this morning that I don't think the main thrust of this text is, hey, Jesus has all authority, so go do what he says. Although I think that's true. Jesus does have all authority and we should listen to him. But I think the main point rather of this is Jesus has all authority, so what he says we can do. Let me say that again. I don't think the primary part of emphasis of this text is Jesus has all authority, so go do what he says. Instead, I think the main point is Jesus has all authority, so what he says we can actually do. In other words, the authority of Jesus here is not a warning saying, hey, you better listen to Jesus. He has all authority. You better get out there. Go make disciples. Instead, this, this text is actually good news because we can say, because Jesus has authority, that means there's not a single place where we can go where it's impossible to make disciples. We can go anywhere and we can go to anyone. And there's a guarantee that we will have success in making disciples. Why? Because Jesus has authority there. He has authority over anyone and over everywhere. So no matter where we go, no matter where we're making disciples, Jesus' authority reigns supreme there. In fact, I'd argue that part of the gospel is this idea that Jesus has authority. In fact, the early church, when they would describe the gospel, they would often say, Jesus is Lord, far more often than they would say Jesus is Savior. Why? Because the, this word gospel, it's not an original Christian word. 
The biblical writers borrowed this from the ancient world. And when it was used in the ancient world, it, would, it was often used to describe a military victory. And what would happen is when two countries would go to war and one country would win, they would send a messenger back to their hometown and he would come in and he would say, gospel, gospel, good news, good news. We have defeated our enemies. We've won a great victory. You don't have to fear. You can know peace because our King is Lord. That's what the word gospel means. So apply this to Jesus and he's done this on a cosmic scale because Jesus has, is the king and the Lord who's defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, which means there's no other authority that's more powerful than Jesus is. And he's commissioned us to go into the world declaring gospel, gospel. There is one who has won a great victory for us. We don't have to remain in the shadow of our sins. We can come out into the light. We can know peace with God and peace with each other. Jesus is Lord, not of some country or some empire, but the whole universe. So the mission of making disciples isn't just commissioned because the authority of Jesus says we should. The authority of Jesus is actually what propels the mission. Because when we go make disciples, we're declaring the authority of Jesus. So church, do you realize what this means? This means there's not one square inch of Northern Colorado where the curse of sin is not going to one day be pulled back. There, there's not one dorm room. There's not one classroom. There's not one fraternity or sorority on this campus where God can't save somebody. There, there's not one neighborhood in Greeley where a family can't find restoration in the cross. There's not one school where a kid can't find adoption into the family of God. There's not one prison where a gang member can't find grace for his sins. There's, there, there's not one farm or factory where a worker can't find rest for his soul. Why? Because Jesus has the authority to save, redeem, and restore in all of those places. I can't tell you how many times when, when Keith and I were exploring, what does it look like to, to plant a church here in Greeley? I can't tell you how many times we heard from different people that Greeley was too far gone. You're never going to be able to plant a church there. You're never going to be able to establish a college ministry at UNC. That's impossible. The devil roams the streets here, right? The, the violence of Greeley is insurmountable. You can't push back that kind of darkness. And in, in this post-Christian culture that is Colorado and Greeley, it's impossible to build a church. You can't do that. And I'm here to say that, guys, if we believe even 1% of that, we don't believe in the authority of Jesus. There is no Greeleyite. Is that what they're called? Greeleyites? All right, well, now they are. Greeleyites, there's... There's no one Greeleyite who is beyond the grace of Jesus because Jesus has authority over all of Greeley. And I think we have to start here because I'm convinced that many Christians never even attempt to make disciples because we just believe that mission is impossible, especially in places like Colorado and Greeley. But I'm convinced that Salt Church here, between us, we can write a different story where we honestly believe that Jesus has so much authority, he has the power to save all 107,000 people who call Greeley home. He has that kind of power. Can you imagine what that would do to Northern Colorado if Greeley became everybody here was a Christian? It would rewrite the landscape. It would push back the darkness. God can save and redeem anyone. If it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, a classmate, or a neighbor, anyone can become a disciple of Jesus because Jesus has authority. He has all authority. 
Second way this Im- uh, has impact on our way we make disciples is we make disciples by the authority of Jesus. We make disciples by the authority of Jesus. I think it's safe to say in our culture that we have uh, a problem uh, with authority. We have an issue with authority, and I, and I don't think it's without reasons. Uh, everywhere you look, you can see cases where people have abused their positions of authority to get more power, to get more wealth. They've taken advantage of people. Uh, they've manipulated others. They steal away freedoms, all for their own advantage. But Jesus doesn't outright condemn authority. In fact, he redeems it and shows how to use it the right way. Matthew 20, 25 through 28 says this, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must also be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If the mission of Jesus was marked by service and giving his life away, then it better mark our mission and the way that we make disciples. It should look like we're serving others and giving our lives away. I know for me, I want the, I want the discipleship making process to be easy. <laughs> like, I, I want positions of prominence and like, I almost want to be an armchair discipler, right? Where I can just sit back and tell people how to live like Jesus and they'll all just listen to me the first time, Right. Like that would be amazing, but it doesn't work that way. And if that's what we do, it's actually going to work against our mission because no one's going to want to follow a savior whose followers have a superiority complex. Again, before we engage the process of making disciples, we not only declare the good news that is the authority of Jesus, but we have to demonstrate it by the way that we live. We have to serve rather than be served. I think this means opening up our homes and allowing our neighbors to come in and share a meal with us. I think it means uh, helping a friend with a house project or a classmate with their homework, especially when it's inconvenient. This means opening up our wallets to maybe help somebody with a car repair or giving up possessions like furniture to help a newly married couple furnish their place. This means doing more than just the bare minimum at work. It means taking on tasks that no one wants to do. This means getting close enough to people to know their needs. I think sometimes we want to, our hearts in the right place and we want to serve. And so we just jump in thinking we know what it's best for other people. But oftentimes service starts with what, what do you need? What, let me get close enough to you in relationship to know how to serve you the right way. I think it means just showing up when people go through the hardness of life and just being present. If we've got any shot of making disciples, then this is where we start. It starts with serving others. We can be accused of a lot of things here at Salt Church, but may our lack of service never be one of those things. The authority of Jesus anchors the mission. The second idea that I want to show us in the text is making disciples gives meaning to the mission. Making disciples gives meaning to the mission. Uh, I'm really glad that Jesus uh, has all authority and the confidence that brings to the mission, but I'm also glad that that's not all Jesus says, right? It's not like he appeared to his disciples and it's like, I have all authority. I'll see you. When I come back, figure it out. Good luck. No, he, he gives us some marching orders. He gives us a plan. He tells us what to do. Can you imagine a football coach who like huddled his team together and was like, all right, guys, here's the game plan. There is no plan. <laughs> like we're all together. Have fun out there. Try to win. I don't know what to tell you to do, but good luck, right? 
And if you've ever seen a peewee football game, that's exactly what happens when they huddle them together. It's like trying to herd cats. Uh, but Jesus doesn't treat us that way, right? He's the best coach. He knows what we need to win. And he gives us a plan to succeed in executing the mission. Let's take a look at this plan. Verses 19 through 20 say this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A few weeks ago, uh, Keith preached uh, on one of our key aspects of our vision, which is to multiply disciples. And he did a great job explaining what a disciple is. In fact, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It was a great sermon. This morning, I want to piggyback on that and not talk so much about what a disciple is, but the process of making them. How do you actually make disciples? I think these verses give us a plan. They lay out a grid for doing this. Let me nerd out on this sentence here a little bit and show us this. Uh, there's technically in the English, uh, the way it works, uh, there's technically only one verb in this sentence, and then the rest are prepositions, right? So let me put it another way. There's only one action that we're called to in this verse, and then the other things describe what that action looks like. So let's put this together. The only action or verb in that sentence is to make disciples. Everything else explains what that looks like. And there's essentially three ways or three things that explain making disciples. Go to all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach obedience to all that Jesus has commanded. So if you were to boil down the basic plan of how do you make disciples, it's got three steps. Go, baptize, teach obedience. Those are the three steps needed to make disciples. Let me break this down so we can see what this looks like. Step one, go. Making disciples involves going. A modern uh, translation to this or a modern interpretation uh, to this will often say that word go in um, your, your Bible in the Greek could be translated as you go or as you go out, make disciples. In other words, the implication should be we should build discipleship into what we're naturally already doing. And that's true. The problem is I'm not naturally inclined to want to go make disciples. I'm naturally inclined to want to watch college football, uh, eat Chipotle, and think about the next time I'm going to get to go to sleep. Hashtag parent life, right? Like I need, I need my, my hours. Uh, but, I, and, and the truth is, I don't think any of us are really naturally bent towards discipleship. You don't just naturally gravitate into being an awesome disciple maker. So instead of trying to cram discipleship into our lives, it's just one more thing to do. What if we said, what does it look like to reorient our lives around making disciples? We don't do this naturally. So what would it look like to actually uh, create uh, a spiritual uh, a life or uh, allow the Holy Spirit to create a spiritual life in us where making disciples does become natural to us. I think this is what Jesus wants from us. I think so often we think discipleship is, I got to get an ESV study Bible and I got to get a moleskin journal and I got to get a fountain pen and I got to meet with somebody at Blue Mug at 6 a.m. And that's what discipleship looks like. Instead, what if we ask the question in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment life, what am I doing to orient these actions around discipleship? Let me give you some examples. If you're making dinner for your family, don't just make dinner for your family. Invite somebody over, ask them to help you cook alongside you, and use that time to disciple that person. If you're going camping, don't go alone. Bring some people with you. Use that time as an opportunity for 
discipleship. If you're a parent and you got to run an errand, take a kid with you. They're trapped in your car. They can't go anywhere. Use that time to dialogue with them as a time for discipleship with them. If you're a student, look around your class and your dorm and invite someone to grab lunch with you and tell them why you moved to Greeley, that you're a part of a church plan. You want to see people come to know Jesus. See if that leads to a spiritual conversation. If you don't know how to get in a spiritual conversation, pray for one. If you have a break with one of your coworkers, enter into that break. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It could be 30 seconds. Say, Lord, help me to have a spiritual conversation with this person. And it might lead to a discipleship relationship. That's as you go discipleship. Additionally, the text says that we're to go to all nations. The Great Commission isn't uh, done until we, it becomes global. We as a church have to think globally when it comes to this, and we want to be a part of that. And I'm sure we're going to preach other messages that deal with how do we send people across the globe to bring the gospel to people that desperately need to hear it. But this morning, I just want to point out the fact uh, that something hit me new this week, that I think this mission to go to all nations would have actually jolted the the disciples because it meant that anyone could become a disciple. I think for me, I so easily write off certain people, right? I'm like, ah, that person's not going to become a disciple. That person, you know, has a messed up family background. They're, you know, they have a past that's just loaded with sin. They're not going to become a disciple of Jesus. And guess what? That's oftentimes the people that Jesus saves and makes a disciple. Guys, the early church The the best disciple maker was Paul. That dude was a terrorist of the church and killed Christians. That's the last person the early church thought was going to be a disciple. And yet he became the greatest disciple maker the world's ever known. Outside of Jesus, of course. But uh, God wants to oftentimes use the least, uh, the person that we least expect to become a disciple, to be a disciple maker. Step two in uh, making disciples is to baptize. Now, why is baptism listed here? Well, it's because baptism is the initiation or the ceremony, if you will, that confirms you are in fact a disciple of Jesus. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. So when you go under the waters, it represents or it's a symbol that your old way of life is done. Living for yourself or whatever you are living for is done. And when you come up out of the waters, you're saying, this is my new life in Christ. I'm choosing to follow him. He has saved me. He has redeemed me. This is my new life found in him. As a good Protestant evangelicals, I think sometimes we downplay the significance of baptism uh, in order to defend that baptism doesn't save you. Let me just be clear, cards on the table. I 100% agree that baptism does not save you. And yet I don't think the New Testament really has a category for a Christian who's not baptized. It's that significant to the life of a Christian. Why? Because baptism is the foundation for our identity as a disciple. Because we live in a culture that's obsessed with finding their true identity. Some try to create their identity out of their career or their families, their relationships, their abilities, their successes. Other people try to just claim an identity, right? Out of what they feel or their sexuality or their gender, And if I'm honest, that just sounds so exhausting. Because if you try to create your identity, you're going to be constantly trying to go around and get approval and gain acceptance from other people. And if you try to claim your identity, you're going to constantly be trying to go around and gain approval and acceptance from the hardest person it is to gain those things from, yourself. 
But in baptism, we see that we don't have to create or claim an identity because in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we already have an identity created and claimed for us. We're baptized in the name of the Father. That means we're brought into the family of God. You don't have to try to go out and find love in all the wrong places or put your head on your pillow at night and worry that nobody cares about you because the God of the universe loves you like a good father loves his child. We're baptized in the name of the Son, which means we're united with Christ. If you took Christ's resume and all of his accolades and his trophies and scratched his name off and put yours That's what it means to be united with Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Do you ever think God is disappointed with Jesus? Do you ever think God is looking at Jesus and be like, you're not measuring up? No, he sees Jesus as the perfect son of God who measured up in all the ways that we couldn't. And when he looks at you, that's what God sees. That's what it means to be united with him. We don't have to go around proving ourselves to anyone, including ourselves, because Jesus has already proved himself for us. We're baptized in, the name, of the, in the, Holy, uh, the name of the Holy Spirit, which means we're given God's presence to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit is a personal trainer to make us look more like Jesus, and he doesn't suck at his job. He has a 100% success rate in doing that. The reason I'm spelling all of this out, guys, is because the longer I disciple people, the more I realize that when people finally get their identity in Christ, they'll go out and make more disciples. When people finally understand that the Father loves them, that they are united with Christ, that the Holy Spirit has empowered them, they will go out and inevitably make disciples. It's that life-changing. People don't make disciples oftentimes because this wasn't a part of their discipleship. They're not being told of their identity in Christ. And I'm convinced that 99.9% of my discipleship It's just reminding people of their identity until they believe it over and over and over and over again. Step three in uh, making disciples is teach obedience, teach obedience. I think we can miss two ways here. One way is to just teach what Jesus said and then not talk about obedience, right? We, we treat uh, discipleship oftentimes in churches when we create pathways for it. We just treat it as information transfer. Right? If, if you could just know enough, then you'll live the right way. That usually, that doesn't work, right? I, I feel like sometimes we're, we're treating discipleship almost as if it's a game of like Simon says, and you know, you're kind of standing there and Simon's like, you know, Simon says, move your right arm and you're like not moving your right arm. And, and you know, the guy's like, hey, why aren't you moving your right arm? You're just like, well, I'm doing it in my heart. Like, I, I, I know that like that's the right thing to do, but I don't really have to do it, right? Like you can't expect to stay in the game of Simon Says without actually doing the actions. We're not really making disciples unless obedience is a part of it. It's not just knowing the right answers. It involves obedience. I think another way we can miss here is to teach obedience without addressing our motivations for why we're obeying in the first place. The ironic reality is you can obey Jesus's commands and still not be a Christian. Let me say that again. You can obey Jesus' commands and still not be a true disciple. If my kid, uh, you know, thought that they had to earn their right to be in the family of God by cleaning their room, like let's say I told my kid, hey, you need to go clean your room. And they thought I need to obey that in order to maintain my status in the family of God or in the family of the Randalls, Right. I, we're going to have a serious conversation and with my child and be like, there's a disconnect here, right? Because I, I, when I brought my kid home from the hospital, I'm not like, 
I'm going to wait to give them a room to sleep in until they've earned their right in my family. No, I, I, give, I give them a room because I love them and I tell them to clean it because I want them to enjoy it. Because this is how obedience should work as Christians, right? God, God doesn't tell you to obey so that you can earn your right into the family of God. He's already earned that right for you through Christ. When he tells you to obey, it's for your delight. It's for your enjoyment. Christianity doesn't teach obey God's commands and then you're in. It teaches you're already in because of the gospel. Now, therefore, obey. Because that fundamentally changes the reason why you obey in the first place. Because we start to see that we don't have to obey to prove ourselves to God or to others, but that obedience is actually joy-filled and not a kill joy. I'd also be remiss here if I didn't say that when we teach obedience to Christ's commands, that includes the ones here in Matthew 28 that tell us to go make disciples. We're not fully obeying Christ's teaching unless we are making disciples as well. I think this is where people kind of throw up their hands and be like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I, I don't know how to make disciples. I can't make disciples. I don't know enough. I've literally broken all of the 10 commandments. How am I supposed to set an example of following Christ's teaching and obedience, right? And to that, I would just, I just want to say to you, you don't have to know everything. I think that's one of the biggest killers to making disciples is there's this belief that we have to have the knowledge of the scholars in order to do that. Because one of your best friends in discipleship is this statement. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But hey, let's get together and read the Bible and figure this out for ourselves. Because that's one of the best tools you can use in discipleship. Also, if you're waiting around for a perfect record of obedience before you ever step out and make disciples, you're never going to do it. What I love about this Great Commission passage is who Jesus is talking to. Because this is not the A team you entrust this mission to, right? Uh, I, I love even in this verse, if you jump up, uh, or in this passage, if you jump up to verse 17, it says uh, that there are, or picture this, right? Jesus is on a mountain. He's resurrected from the dead. This guy you saw die on a cross, get put into a tomb, and now he's appearing before you. You've ate fish with him. He's talking to you, and he gives you the greatest mission the world has ever known. And what does that text say in verse 17? Some doubted. There were some people sitting back being like, I don't know about this, Jesus. I don't know if this is real. I don't know if I can do this. Are you kidding me? And yet Jesus doesn't like, you know, throw his hands up and abandon them. He presses in and says, no, I'm still going to commission these imperfect disciples. I'm not starting over. If Jesus commissions imperfect disciples to make more disciples, don't decommission yourself because you have higher standards than Jesus and feel like you haven't arrived. Let me say it again. If Jesus commissions imperfect disciples to make more disciples, don't decommission yourself because you have a higher standard than Jesus and you feel like you haven't arrived. How do we make disciples? Step one, go. Step two, baptize. Step three, teach obedience. Okay, that was a lot. Let's come up for some air here for a second. Uh, one of my favorite uh, superheroes is Batman. And the reason I love Batman is because he's kind of a regular guy. He doesn't have like a superpower. He's, he's smart. He has some resources. And yet he can hang with these superheroes that have all of these superpowers. And probably the thing I love most about uh, Batman is he has Alfred, this 80-year-old butler 
who sits in the bat cave and gives him like, you know, uh, information on how to like complete a mission, who probably irons the, uh, the, the cape that he has and cleans out the Batmobile. And uh, when Batman comes back and he's wounded, he, you know, he, he bandages up his wounds and he tells Batman like, hey, Gotham needs you. Don't quit. The city needs you to go out there and fight crime. I think this is how it should work in the church. I think for too long, we've looked at the pastors as Batman. We've looked at the paid professionals and the leaders in the church as Batman. That they're the ones that have the resources and the skills and the intellect to pull off this mission of making disciples. But guys, hear me on this. The truth is you are a whole lot more like Batman than me and Keith. You are the ones who push back the darkness of the city. You are the ones who have the resources and the intellect and the smarts to get into neighborhoods and businesses and places that you live, work, and play uh, to bring the hope of the gospel where me and Keith could never go. We're more like Alfred. We're the 80-year-old butler, you know, cheering you on, telling you that the mission matters, that when you feel inadequate or want to give up on the mission, that God hasn't given up on you. The truth is the mission is dead in the water. If all we do is come on a Sunday morning and consume for an hour and a half the spiritual goods and services where we like the music and the sermon, and then we go the six other days of the week and we just leave the mission up to the pastors and the paid professionals and the leaders and think that we're not involved with that. We can't check out on the mission of God because we feel too busy or we're just bad at making disciples. Instead, we need to see that discipleship is something we orient our whole lives around as we go throughout our weeks, constantly asking in prayer, God, who are the people that you've called me to disciple? You guys don't live, work, and play where you do on accident. That's a kingdom post. God has prepared people for you to disciple that only you can disciple, not me or Keith. Now, if you're, sure, if you're still unsure, like, where do I start with that? I would encourage you to find someone after this gathering or jump into our home groups. Those rhythms, we don't do those on accident. These are created as as disciple-making home bases where we can ask each other, what does it look like to start making disciples? I'd encourage you to find somebody if you're unsure where to start and ask, what does it look like for us to start making disciples? Then open up the scriptures and figure that out together. You'll be well on your way towards making disciples if that's what you do. So church, Jesus has given us a plan and his authority guarantees the success of that plan. And if that, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus gives us one more promise in his mission. This leads me to my final point. The presence of Jesus preserves the mission. The presence of Jesus preserves the mission. It says there at the end of verse 20, and behold, I am with you even unto the end of the age. I think it's easy for us to read this as a nice sentiment, as if Jesus is saying, hey, I'll be with you in spirit, as if Jesus is just this like memory that we recall when we're feeling down, and, and our ability to make disciples doesn't seem to be there. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's, not, he's saying, I'm not just going to be with you in spirit. I'm going to literally dwell in you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not mission control while we're up there in space doing the mission. Jesus is in there, in the trenches, in with us. It's his mission. Because the disciples didn't turn the world upside down because of a resurrection memory. They turned the world upside down because the same Holy Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, empowered them to complete the mission. You and I are not alone in Christ's disciple-making mission. He's in it with us. It's his mission. He's going to be there until the job is done. 
this gives me, I think, an unbelievable confidence, and I hope it does for you too, because I, I don't know about you guys, but I, oftentimes in discipleship, I feel like I'm just throwing things against the wall and hoping something sticks, <laughs> right? I, I have so many failed attempts at discipleship in my past where my heart wasn't in the right place or people bailed and the relationship floundered. And sometimes I wonder, like, do I even know how to make disciples? Have I even made a real one? And I think the answer to that question is yes. You know why? Because Jesus is with me and he hasn't bailed on his mission and he is successful at making disciples. The same God who made a group of 12 disciples change the world some 2000 years ago still wants to do that in and through us. He won't stop until he returns. You want to experience God? You want to be close to him and know his heart? Go make disciples because that's where the presence of God is. Wherever the mission of making disciples is taking place, that's where the presence of God is. The man who discipled me would often tell me something like this. John, the greatest adventure you'll ever take isn't a better career, a different relationship, or even another ministry position. The greatest adventure that can ever be found is in the mission of making disciples because there's no greater joy than watching the God of the universe take your imperfect skills and impact a real human being with the gospel so that their eternal destiny is changed forever. The authority of Jesus anchors the mission. Making disciples gives meaning to the mission and the presence of God preserves the mission. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this church. I pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us into the image of your son, that we all would take up the mantle, this mission to go make disciples, knowing that it is your authority that propels this mission, that you've given us a plan, God, to go, to baptize, showing people their identity, to teach obedience that comes from the heart. And ultimately, God, your presence is with us because you're in the trenches with us. You're, this is your mission that we're joining you in. So Father, would we respond to that invitation here this morning and join you in mission and making disciples here in Greeley and to the ends of the earth. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.